Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Detroit Bad Boys podcast, the official podcast of DetroitBadBoys.com and SB Nation site. Thank you for joining me right before tip-off of the Oklahoma City Thunder game. This evening's game will be the 11th game of the regular season. So for this episode, we talk about the first 10 games of the Pistons season, including the recent road stretch for the Pistons. Uh, that included the first Pistons road win, and we talk about that on the podcast with Jacob Kivenhoven this week. Jacob also talks to us about some players who have disappointed, and if it's time as a fan to hit the panic button. Some exciting things on this episode. I'm sure you'll love it. Continue to support this podcast in the many ways you can. Find us and subscribe to us on iTunes. Rate us on iTunes and all places where you find this podcast. And if you're looking for archived episodes of this podcast, go to blogtalkradio.com slash DetroitBadBoys. Thanks so much for all the continued support. Let's go to work. for this episode from DetroitBadBoys.com is Jacob Kivenhoven, the frequent contributor and also helps to cover the drive, the Grand Rapids drive for the Detroit Pistons affiliate. Jacob, how are you? I'm doing well, Jordan. Thanks for having me on. Uh, congratulations to Ben Golker on his incoming or already came child and uh, happy to fill in for him. Hope I can do a decent job at it. Yeah, we're looking forward to having you on for a few weeks. Uh, it's, it's an exciting time for the Pistons, although that was... Not quite as exciting after this last week of basketball, with the Pistons going 1-3 and three on the road, losing three straight before that win against the Nuggets on Saturday night. Uh, I think that's where I want to start with this episode, is just kind of your general feelings about the team right now. They're 5-5 five and five going into tonight's game with the Thunder. Where do you sit with this team? Are you happy with how they've played so far? And are you ready to hit the panic button about anything with this team in general? I, I don't think so. I'm really glad that they got kind of the, the road win monkey off their back with the win over the Nuggets. But, you know, up until yesterday night, they had an 0-3 week. The loss against the Suns wasn't great for sure, but the other two, like the Bengal League so far, first, that's just never a road game that I'd expect us to win. So I was never quite ready to panic about this team, and I think, you know, 5-5 five and five without Reggie Jackson as a start, I'm reasonably happy with that, especially since the East as a whole isn't really on fire or anything. You know, I, I don't know what it will take to get in the playoffs this year. I don't think it'll be quite like last year, uh, where you know the Pistons with with uh, how the team played this last week and how they've played on the road. We've seen this road stretch for the Pistons where they go out west. It's been an issue under Stan Van Gundy and for the team over the last few years. Is that something you worry about, or those road stretches for the Pistons? And and what does that say about the team? I think this is a team that you would expect every night to get out there to defensive rebound to play decent defense. I mean, I've been very impressed with the defense as a whole this year. I think the main problems in these road trips have kind of obviously pretty fast-paced games against the Clippers and the Spurs, and they still only put up 86 was the highest that they put up in any of those stretches. So I think it's just kind of hard to evaluate this team with Reggie Jackson out. It's not something that I'd say necessarily is a huge concern. Everyone's going to struggle with road trips to the Clippers and the Spurs, but I, I I am worried a little bit that the creativity is just going to wane a little bit, but I mean, you're you're going into a game like that hoping you can slow it down, grind it out, win it on the boards, win it on the offensive boards, and lock down on defense, which I don't think is a bad game plan, and it's certainly the one they had. I mean, Evan Gundy, after these games, said he was pretty happy with how the team played, and they were just missing shots, and 
you know, I'm, I, I don't think they necessarily have the personnel to make shots a, a lot on like a regular basis, but I don't, don't disagree with that evaluation by Stan. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I, I don't disagree with that. Uh, the one thing I was a little nervous about with this Pistons team thus far, in 10 games into the season, I look at the Suns game and the Nets game in particular, two games where we lost 107-100 to 100 and 109-101. Winnable games that kind of slipped away, had an opportunity in the fourth quarter and could never really get it back to even or take the lead against, I would say, inferior teams. I think that's fair to say with the Suns and Nets. Uh, I, I'm still worried that this team certain nights just doesn't really show up early in the game against bad teams. Uh, I know part of that is scheduling with those two games, but I'm worried a bit about playing down to your opponent. Do you see that at all? I definitely do, but at the same time, I mean, I think a lot of the a lot of it is kind of thin with the consistency. It's like the Suns are not a good team, right? Every single one of their wins is going to come against the Sixers and you know, the two or three other teams that you would say are the worst, they're going to manage to win, you know, 25 games in a year. So I think That's the true. fact that they caught us on a road game when, you know, Alex Len was efficient, you know, he's never really been efficient in his career. I think there's just enough outliers and there are enough things working against us that you can't expect to win every game against teams that are theoretically worse than you on paper. Yeah, that's fair. And looking at the Spurs and Clippers game, those losses didn't bother me quite as much. I think I'd like to see a little more offensively from what I saw in the Clippers game. But with the Spurs hanging around in that game for you know stretches and only losing by 10, uh, when I think we just did not play as well as the Spurs did, I wasn't bothered by that. It was nice to see the Pistons come back on that last game against the Nuggets and, and find a way to win 106-95. Just focusing on that game, since that's the last time that we saw the Pistons, uh, any takeaways from what you saw in that Nuggets game? Yeah, I mean, the first quarter was about as well as I've seen this team play offensively. And I think one of the big things has been Andre Drummond's kind of return to the offensive glass. Five offensive rebounds, four of them, I believe, in the first quarter of that game. And I think that kind of domination is really something that the Pistons had been missing. They ranked as you know a top two, top three team an offensive rebounding last year behind Oklahoma City. And this year they've been sitting at around 15th, 16th. So basically an average team offensive rebounding. And I think having Drummond, you know, managing to impact the game that much, even though he only played 27 minutes, is really one of the few kind of game-breaking things that this team can bring. And it was a very encouraging thing to see that back. Yeah, I agree. I think it was encouraging to see the entire starting unit play as, as well as they did. Uh, even even seeing Ish Smith, his you know two to one assist to turnover ratio at ten points in the game, but the plus minus for the entire starters, you know, we're looking at plus six being the worst from from that unit. Uh, and they did a really nice job against the Nuggets big men. We had talked in the first game against the Nuggets on the podcast against how they did against Nurkic and Jokic. Uh, but you saw Farid and Nurkic paired together more in this game, and the Pistons seem to do pretty well in that matchup. Do you like how the Pistons have dealt with kind of versatile front courts and different front court matchups, uh, especially with Drummond in particular? Do you like how he's playing uh, defensively against some of these big men he's seen the, so far in 10 games? Sort of yes and no. I mean, there's been a lot of cases where he's looked really uncomfortable in space. I mean, the main example of that has been that Nets game game where Brooke Lopez went and hit four threes off him. I think that he's, you know, this, this Nuggets game was definitely a big step in the right direction where he looked a lot more comfortable against guys that have a little bit more of a skill set that allows them to him them to kind of 
drag him further away from the rim, either that or get an open mid-ranger. I think he's definitely got the skills to do so. And I, I think like for all the complaints that people can make about, you know, this team's defense and how bad they're going to look in certain matchups. I mean, they've ranked very, very highly so far this year. So I think Andre Drummond has played pretty well defensively. I mean, I'd, I'd say this is as good as any 10 game stretch I've seen for, out of him. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you. This is in terms of the double doubles that you kind of expect from Andre Drummond. It's, it's more than that. I think you're right. He's getting a little more comfortable defensively, at least in the paint. Uh, I'd like to see if it's Tobias Harris or, or Marcus Morris, I'm not sure who, help Drummond out in terms of defense with those big men that can play away from the basket because I think you're right. That, it, that is where Drummond gets into trouble. Uh, and when it's his matchup, he's just he's struggling. That's, that's not uh, playing to his strength at all. So I, I'd like to see the team find a way to mask that. Do you see any way that the team could, uh, that the Pistons could find a way to kind of cover up for Drummond's deficiencies on the on defense? I think one of the things that was kind of evident, and they went to this a bit in the Nuggets game, but not even as much as I wanted, but in a case where Nurkic and Jokic are on the floor at the same time, or Fareed and Nurkic are on the floor at the same time, you can just put Drummond on the power forward if it's a guy who's not particularly skilled. And then, you know, a, a, a center isn't really going to be able to, to punish uh to punish Marcus Morris if he's trying to post him up 25 feet from the basket or something. So I think usually there's one guy in a front court who's not really going to be that skilled. And if you can put Drummond on that guy, then I think you can usually get away with the other team having a stretch five. But I think, you know, the stretch five is really the thing that's going to be a problem for the Pistons over the course of the season, I think, just because Drummond doesn't really have a good way to deal with these guys yet. I think he could get there, but we also, aside from John Moore, who has his own defensive limitations, we just don't really have any centers with all these centers on our roster who are comfortable defending in space. That's true. And with that, do you not want to see Drummond and Lure play more together? Because I know I've seen in the comments and game threads on DBB that some people are calling for Lure and Drummond to play together uh, because of what they might be able to do offensively. Do you worry about the defense with those two? I don't worry about them both together. I worry about the defense with Drummond, with somebody who's not willing to defend in space well. Sure. I worry about the defense with Lure at center, but I do think that they should look when they're trailing in a game pretty badly down the stretch, then they should definitely go with Lure at center. Okay. Uh, one thing I, I took away from this game was it was one of the few box scores that just looking at it, the Pistons shot very poorly. I mean, 4 of 18 from 3-point and came out with a win, an 11-point win against the Nuggets. Seeing how this team played and I, um, seeing how this team played and then looking at the box score. Well, I mean, the Pistons were able to kind of match point shooting in other ways, which I think they're going to have to do. They had, they got out-rebounded, which, I mean, Freed is a great offensive rebounder. They have a lot of big men in the Nuggets. Stu, but, you know, they, they only turned the ball over nine times. They had 11 steals. They had 23 assists to the Nuggets' 15. I mean, I think that they just kind of – their offense made sense in more ways than the Nuggets did, even if it's like, you know, the Pistons are not going to be a good shooting team at any point in the near future. They're going to have games where they, they shoot well. But, I mean, they're, this one of my main concerns over the course of the year was – there's just not really anybody that you can look at except maybe John Moore, who's an above-average shooter for their position. That's true. Is that a worry going forward that you have, and, and how much of a concern is that for the Pistons? 
certainly one of their bigger concerns, right? Because you trust them to be able to defend. You trust them to be able to rebound the basketball. You trust them to be able to keep turnovers down and to create extra possessions on the offensive glass. What you don't trust them to be able to do is make shots. And I, I don't really foresee that changing. I mean, again, like if you shoot enough threes, you're not going to go four out of 18 ever per game. They could steal a series from someone. Absolutely. But I think, yeah, a high level shooter of any kind or even more average shooters is what they're missing. I think, I mean, Ish Smith, when you're, I think, I believe he's still shooting 9% from threes. <laughs> I mean, that's just gonna, that's gonna gum up your offense. There's no way around that in a modern NBA system with a point guard like that. Yeah, I saw that on Twitter the other night. Someone pointed out he was shooting 9% and just asked, is that bad? Yeah, yeah, that's not what you want from and the point guard taking over for Reggie it's Jackson. It's not what you want. No, it's not what you want. Uh, let's talk a little I mean, bit more about the, Ish. Like, we're getting to the thing where it's like, like, I mean, I have a greater chance of like getting cancer in the next 20 years than he does of making it three. <laughs> right, that 9% that nine percent yeah. number does bring in statistics like that, exactly. Just focusing a bit more on Ish, we've seen 10 games now with him working with the starting unit, getting, you know, close to 30 minutes a game. How would you grade his first 10 games with the Pistons taking over for Reggie Jackson? Um, I'd give him, like, uh, slightly below average. So, I mean, like, on the inflated grades of today, that's like a B minus. Uh, in the <laughs> olden days, that would probably be like a C minus. That's, I just, that's fair. I, I'm not sure. I I would almost, I, I never got the chance to talk to Ben about this, but I think in some ways with the increased shot creation that you had with the starters, I almost thought that Udra could be a better fit with the starters while Ishmith could have been kind of on the second unit and being able to create a little bit more than he could on the second unit. So I, I would almost have liked to see them do that. But at the same time, I think that's just like not politically the right move. Right. I think part of that is the contract that Ish has and, uh, bringing Beno Udra in and, you know, just a week before the season started, I'm sure you're right. It, it might not be the right move. Go yeah, ahead. but I think he does. Like, I, I think most people would say that Ish Smith is a better fit with the the bench units. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And with Beno Udra, do you think we would see similar production or better production uh, if he was playing with the starters right now? I think it would be similar production, but I would hope that it would uh, improve his on-off a little bit. I, I, I'm not sure. I think... The bench hasn't struggled that badly, but if it did begin to struggle, I would really want them to go with Smith there. But I mean, obviously, I think there's been reports that Jackson, he's still a few weeks away, but he is kind of ramping up the basketball activities a little bit. So obviously his return will probably push Udra out of the rotation. Okay, and that was Ben's last question on uh, the previous podcast was, when Reggie returns, would you like to see Benno or Ish take over the primary backup minutes? What, what would you like to see and what do you expect to see? I expect that it will be Ish Smith, and I think he is a better fit with the backups, so I would want to roll with him at first. But um, it is nice to know that Udra could supplant him, and I certainly wouldn't want them to stick with Ish Smith if he continues to shoot, like, if he gets into a stretch where he's shooting under or 30% from the field or something, then I would not want him to stay in. Right, right. And I guess it's good then to just have the insurance of Benno. He's been one of the more pleasant surprises I've had as a Pistons fan uh, to this point in the season. Ish, I think, 
the assist numbers, when you look in the box score, they, they look really pretty, but I'm not sure if I always see it in the game with Ish. Uh, I, even in the Nuggets game, shooting five of 12, having the four turnovers, the four personal fouls, those were kind of the bigger takeaways for me that at times he seems a little lost defensively. He can be a little loose with the basketball. Uh, so I don't always see those those great assists and some of the things I expected to see when he came over from the 76ers. What is it about his game that you think makes him a better fit for the bench unit? I think he just has more creative. Uh, he has a more creative offensive game. He has a better first step. He's able to sort of, even if even if they're going to be lower efficiency possessions, like he's able to create those possessions and keep the offense from being stagnant. I mean, he's not that good, Jordan. I mean, like, I think we all know (laughs) that he's not that great. Like he's been in the league six years and had, you know, nobody's hung on to him. Like I believe that somebody would have hung on to him. But I mean, he has some ability to make the offense turn uh, with an offense that couldn't turn otherwise. So just having somebody who, is able to make something happen, even if it's not really a great possession. Need to keep their offense afloat. Uh, another player that I think it's too early to say something like he's not that good, but I've been really disappointed with how he's played. That's Stanley Johnson. I see some fans hitting the panic button, wishing that we had drafted Devin Booker, wishing we had drafted Justice Winslow. Before we talk about the coulda, wouldas, and shouldas, let's talk a bit about Stanley Johnson. Are you ready to make, after 10 games, are you ready to say anything about his game? Are you ready to give him a grade, or is it still incomplete to this point? I think it's incomplete, right? Like, when are they going to give him a chance to be more involved in what they're doing? I mean, right now, they're saying his job is to defend, and they haven't really gone beyond that. And last year, he was forced to create a lot as a rookie, and most of the time, it was really bad. I don't want to necessarily criticize him that he had like creating and it's going now he's just kind of not doing anything rather than doing things poorly and I think he would have flashes if he was doing things well now but I mean there's a lot of questions to answer with him right I mean most of the time in your second year in the league if you're going to be a star you're going to start showing some significant signs of that in your second year I mean there are some exceptions like Jimmy Butler but that's an exception for a reason I mean it's not a realistic expectation for him to be Jimmy Butler if he is kind of just blah like this for the rest of the year. So I would say it's like I'm not worried about a starter down the road perhaps, but I'm definitely worried about him being like a above-average outcome for the number eight pick. Yeah, I think that's kind of my concern is I'm a little worried about the value as the number eight pick with Stanley Johnson. How much of that do you blame on his role? I know you mentioned it, that right now it seems his focus is on defense. Do you blame his role or just the way he's playing? I mean, I think he would have, like, if he was playing better, he would have commanded more touches and more shots and more time closing with the starters. I mean, I just don't know if he's, when he's going to get to the point where he's good enough to not be, like, your fourth or fifth option on offense. And I think that's more on him, but I mean, it's it's hard to say whether more reps could have helped him, but at the same time, I'm not going to throw away the chance to win a game to give Stanley Johnson more reps. 
Right, and it doesn't seem that, that Stan Van would be comfortable with that as well. And this is a playoff team, so we're not in the position to just roll out the young guys and see how it works. And I think that's something fans do need to keep in mind. Uh, but he still is a, a part of the rotation and has yeah. played has and played well defensively. Right now, because the rotation is not exactly easy to crack right now. No, that's true. I mean, it's a nine-man rotation. That's what it looks like it will continue. Uh, I'm wondering, though, how Reggie Bullock and his return will affect Stanley Johnson. Do you see that being a, a – do you see that biting into Stanley's minutes when Reggie's back completely healthy? Bullock, that is. I think, yeah, in, in certain situations, maybe. I mean, there's not a whole lot of evidence that he would play Reggie Bullock over or Stanley Johnson in a general nine-man rotation sense that they've been going with, but – I think if they're trailing a game and Stan Van really wants to go out there and try to try to get back into it, I think Bullock shooting would be probably prioritized. Yeah, that's very true. But as as a as a whole, I don't think he would take away all that much playing time from Stanley Johnson, though. Okay, uh, moving on to another player that's been as I've noticed in game threads getting a lot of attention, uh, some negative and, and some of, some of it being his play being inconsistent. I don't want to say disappointing because his, his game has been inconsistent at this point, and that's Contavious Caldwell-Pope. I know you wrote an article that we talked about in the last podcast about the reality of keeping KCP and, and signing him to an extension. Uh, with the way he's played through 10 games, what number cap-wise are you comfortable with him signing in the offseason? Is, is it a max deal? I mean, that's that's such a hard question to approach because, like, is another team has another team signed him to a max, you know, offer sheet? Sure. Uh, yeah. Another team has? I, I match it then, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so if, if another team is, is putting it close to that max number, then, then you're matching. I am, because they're, I mean, like, I think, like, I don't expect everyone to read the CBA. I mean, I don't read the CBA fully, <laughs> you know, cover to cover either, but it's like, guys, there's just not a good way to replace him. Yeah, and I know I I had brought up the uh, uh, the idea of trying to make a trade at the at the deadline. What is it about that that you don't see being quite as realistic as just resigning him? Um. Well, I, I guess I have to go back and listen to some of more of the trade options more closely. But I think it's just you know you're either trading. It's I can't imagine us getting a guy who's nearly as good for any of our trade ships aside from like one of our rookies or younger guys like Stanley Johnson. Like I'm, I count me squarely out on anybody trading a good wing starter for Aaron Baines. Right. Right. It's not going to happen just for Aaron Baines. And we had talked a bit about KCP and Baines getting close to that $10 million cap number at the deadline. Uh, but with KCP and what he gives the team defensively and how many minutes he still has in that rotation. I, I mean, I noticed it against the Nuggets. The, the way he plays defensively definitely makes an impact uh, on yeah. other teams' backcourts. I mean, what's, what's, what's the downside to signing him is something I'd like to ask Ben or anybody who's not. Like, we don't really lose anything by re-signing him, and we lose a whole lot by not re-signing him is kind of the way I look at it. Well, I know one thing that's, that's talked about is the three-point shooting. Are you worried about his his role as a wing player in this offense and, and not being uh, an average shooter? I mean, he's, I guess if you buy in, like, he's 39% so far this year. He certainly hasn't been a liability so far in terms of his three-point shooting this year. That's true. I also think that volume is underrated a great deal. 
Like, I mean, if you're shooting 32%, I mean, I believe that he could get up to 35%, 34%. Like, that's kind of the worst case. And if you're shooting that at a large volume, like, that's still efficient. Like, I think people kind of underrate volume in terms of three-point shooting. And then that combined with his durability, his high minute totals, and just kind of the lack of anybody else that we have to play those minutes, I think he's definitely, like, I just don't see the alternative. Sure. Signing KCP does mean that the team also kind of locks themselves into the starting unit that they have currently. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think we're kind of locked into it anyway, though. Yeah. The way I view it, but yeah, I agree with you because even with a slight bump in the cap this off season, it's still not enough to really bring in someone enticing. If you let KCP go to the open market and didn't, you know, didn't match or something this off season with what you had talked about, just his high usage rate and the effort he's giving on the defensive end. Do you, I uh, think that's the reason that he ends up not being quite as consistent on the offensive end. And you're right that this year through 10 games, he is shooting much better than, you know, his career averages. But do you still worry yeah, about that usage? Yeah. He relies almost entirely on shots that are kind of going to be high variance. I mean, I think three point shooters, it's just kind of not how it works that a 40% three point shooter is going to go two for five every single night. Like you see it with J.R. Smith. Like it's, it's kind of just, with any shooter, like even Steph Curry, you know, he'll make 13 threes one night and then another night he'll go one for nine or something. It's like, it is a high volatility shot. And I don't think it's necessarily anything that's wrong with his approach that it is just some of them are going to go in and some of them aren't. But I, I tend to look at it a little bit more maybe to a fault, like analytically or robotically than maybe I should. Well, I did want to offer from the last podcast, at least, two trades that, that we had talked about that seem to have some consensus with, uh, no, I'm, I'm definitely up for this. I can't okay. wait for this. All right. All right. Great. So Jamie, Ben and I, we all agreed on, I'll start with the big one. And then we'll work our way down. Baines and KCP for Tyreek Evans. Tyreek Evans is the guy who's going to solve our shooting problems. Probably I mean, like, not. KCP is, KCP is way better than Tyreek Evans. Like Tyreek Evans is like, he's like the Ishmith of shooting guards. Like, he's terrible defensively, he's always injured, and he can't shoot from outside, like, five feet. Like, I I don't think I would do that. Yeah, I was really for it last week, and the more I thought about it and kind of looked at his career numbers, you're right, I would worry about him on the defensive end. I don't know if he really fixes or makes us that much better of a team uh, offensively. I like the idea of him as a a secondary ball handler, but again, that role in the offense is is just kind of Trump. There's only one basketball, so I'm, I'm not sure how much of a difference that makes. Yeah, he's like a less efficient Tobias Harris in my view. And I mean, like, there's also the injury concern. It's like, yes, that guy is constantly injured and KCP is always going to give you decent minutes. Yeah, that was my other concern is, of course, coming off the injury. And KCP has proven to be durable, even with high minutes. And to this point in his career, he's missed very few games. So I think that's something to take into account as well. Uh, when the Pistons are thinking about who do they want to be a core piece for the next few years as their title wins, title window hopefully starts to kind of creak open. Uh, so if you're comfortable with KCP, I think the only other trade, and let me let me just pull it up just to make sure I have it right. So the, okay. the other trade that we had talked about that all three of us were in consensus uh, was Alec Burks. With his situation in Utah, it seems he might be available, uh, especially with the play of Rodney Hood, and if they want to re-sign uh, Hayward to another extension. What do you think of bringing in someone like Alec Burks? What is, so it's Alec Burks and 
for Baines and KCP? Yeah, Burks for Baines and KCP. Okay. Um, I mean, and I think Utah does it because I mean they need they need KCP. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, again, I'm I'm just maybe I'm off on this, but I think I think uh, KCP is better than Alec Burks. Kind of like again, he brings. I mean, I don't know Alec Burks' kind of three-point percentage off the top of my head, but again, he's like this guy who drives off the ball and needs the ball in his hands to be effective and has also, again, been super injury-prone and just isn't the kind of level of defensive competitor that KCP is. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of the concern, again, is durability. Uh, With the other players we talked about, it was at least split when we talked about guys like Danny Green or Wilson Chandler and Gary Harris – and a lot of those just aren't that exciting, and I think you're right. We're definitely not getting a good enough player to replace KCP. Uh, and at that, I mean, especially because, like, previously, and I talked about this in the piece, but, like, before this season, there wasn't really any evidence that KCP was a decent defensive player. And, like, this season, he's kind of been rocking that, and the Pistons are, like, I think fourth or fifth in the league in defensive efficiency. It's like I really think that he's really coming to his own as a defensive guy. And that has made me become more of a fan of his. I mean, he could just shoot 30% for the rest of the year, but I mean, if he's going to be a part of this defense that can really be top five and he's going to shoot 37% from for three, like I'm totally comfortable maxing him out. Yeah. I think I'm coming to that side as well, because it does seem to be easier to find guards that can shoot than guards that can play like KCP. And with the way he defends, I, I think you're right. He's definitely come into his own that way uh, at the end of last season in the first 10 games of this year. And having someone like Reggie Bullock behind KCP on those nights when he's struggling or maybe just is tired, I think you've got a guy that pr- proved last year he can take some of those minutes away and give you that shooting that maybe the team might be looking for at times. Right, definitely. And, you know, maybe I'm too bullish on him, but I think it's like there's two it's too kind of risky to go with somebody else in some ways and like trying to make that work combined with the levels of risk that are there combined with like, are we really going to search out like a way to, to try to replace him through the mid-level exception. And if we're not going to do that, it's going to be through another mid-season shakeup trade when, you know, when Reggie Jackson comes back, this team actually could be pretty nasty right now. Like the only thing that's kind of, stopping this team from being really good. I mean, I, I was kind of, bull- I wasn't very high on the Pistons as a whole last year, but with this, this season, it's kind of like, man, when Reggie Jackson comes back, I really think this team could be good. Is it just what you're seeing in terms of the defensive efficiency that makes you think that, or is it, is it something else? It's mainly that. Yeah. But I mean, like the fact that we've managed to be 15th in offense with a point guard shooting 34% from the field and, <laughs> you know, 9%, from three, that's encouraging as well. That's very true. Uh, if Reggie misses another three weeks and this team remains close to or maybe slightly below 500, does that hurt our playoff chances? Do you see that hurting our playoff I think, chances? Well, yeah, yeah, it hurts our playoff chances. But, I mean, I think we, we talked a little bit pre-show about, you know, what's the nine, what's the ninth team in the league right now behind the Pistons, the Eastern Conference? It's the Brooklyn Nets. I mean, there's just not... <laughs> And, you know, Milwaukee's seventh right now. They're, you know, they've been a good surprise team, but I don't see them being an above 500 team with their current roster. So I think it's like 500 will probably keep us in 
at least very close to striking distance of the eight seed. And I, I guess that kind of goes to with this second year, I know a lot of the predictions coming out of DBB was this team would be closer to 50 wins. Are you happy with this team winning 42 games and getting back into the playoffs similar to how they did last year? I think so. I mean, I, there's, it, it's tough, right? Because you don't know when Reggie's coming back. I would like them if he comes back, you know, when they're 15 and 15, I was kind of on board for, you know, 44, 45 wins. And I think, you know, with all the Reggie's injuries, I think above 500, I wouldn't consider that a disappointment. Yeah, I wouldn't either. I, that's what I saw. Uh, that's what I predicted for the team as well was 45 wins. And that also would be an imp- improvement. It's more than 44. But more than that, I saw the Eastern Conference taking a bit of a step back. I didn't see. Yeah, definitely. I saw the you know teams 4 through 12 just being more competitive with each other. And you're right. You've got someone like Milwaukee right now. They've been a surprise this season with how well they've played. And they're only 5-4. and four. So I can see that kind of being the Eastern Conference as a whole this year. I can see it being a lot more competitive, but that means records a little bit closer to 500. And I think that's a good thing for the Pistons. Uh, yeah, and I don't and I don't think it's like out of the question, too, that like last year Cleveland had a good record, but after that, you know, the two seed had 49 wins or 50 wins or something, and then there were like a bunch of teams of 48. There could be a bunch of teams better than that. Like Atlanta looks really good. Toronto looks really good. Like there could be three really good teams that kind of take away wins from the other guys. Oh yeah, that's true. I didn't think about that. And you have the Charlotte Hornets who have played very well to this point in the season as well. Do you, do you see yes, do you see them hanging around? I know that was a team that uh, in our previews were you know it, it seemed people felt. Uh, there wasn't a consensus on the Charlotte Hornets in the off season. Do you see them hanging around and being a top four or five team in the East? I mean, I do, but Ben and I were always pretty high on them. We? I mean, I, I just trust them to do everything that it takes to win in the regular season. And I think they'll slow down it. When they slow down, it'll be in the playoffs rather than in the regular season. But I mean, a lot of that could change if Michael Kidd Gilchrist gets injured again. Yeah. Looking just elsewhere in uh, the Eastern conference, are there any teams that have surprised one way or the other, just because they've played well or they've played poorly um, before we talk about the Pistons' next few games? Yeah, I think aside from, I mean, I mentioned Milwaukee, I mentioned Brooklyn. I think I I expected Chicago to not be this good, and I expected Washington to be better. I mean, we talked about Washington pretty in-depth on the preview. Um, Their bench has just totally sunk them. And then Chicago, I mean, they've they've been pretty – good honestly a lot better than I expected I'm I'm not sure if you know maybe it is in this case where these guys these wing guys are just so good that it doesn't really matter who the other guys are but I mean they've won you know they barely beat Washington they barely beat the Heat they blew out the Magic who the Magic looked terrible I guess that's another one (laughs) that we could mention but yeah I, I would probably say Chicago being better than I expected and Washington being worse are the ones that jump out to me yeah, with Washington being worse, it, it really separates those top two teams in the Southeast Division from everyone else. You have Miami, Orlando, and Washington that seem to really be struggling this year. And then Charlotte and Atlanta that clearly will just fight with each other for the top of that division. That, I yeah, think, is the, mo- I mean, is the strangest division. Orlando, right is, Orlando is way worse than 3-6, and six too. They have like a yes. negative 10-point differential. Miami is 2-6 and six with a negative 3-point differential. Oof. Yeah, and that, that's something that, as the season goes on, I think you, that'll start to catch up to them. And you're right, they may actually turn out to be worse than that 3-6 and six record indicates right now. 
Anything else just in the NBA that's caught your attention you want to talk about? I mean, the Clippers are amazing. Luke Walton's Lakers are exceeding all the expectations I had. Uh, the Thunder, uh, I mean, and the, the Timberwolves breakout was a little bit overhyped, even though their point differential has been about even, so I guess I'd expect them to get better. Well, I, I do want to talk about, I saw the, the Timberwolves beat, I guess we have to say last night, but it's happening like right now. The Timberwolves beat the Lakers by 20. Uh, and oh, yeah. the Timberwolves were everyone's darling in the offseason. No one expected this out of the Lakers, uh, the way they've played. How much of it do you benefit to head coach Luke Walton with the Lakers? I mean, certainly a bit of it, right? Like, I, I mean, I'm one of the bigger Kobe Bryant detractors out there, so I think losing him was uh, <laughs> a big factor, too. <laughs> I don't think anyone would tell you that. I don't. I don't think anyone would tell you that Luke Walton isn't a isn't a great coach or that he hasn't done an amazing job with this so far. It's just been a, a joy to watch that team with how free flowing they've been and also their just totally re-envisioned defensive intensity. Yeah, I think it would be really interesting if this team finds a way to sneak into the playoffs because it would be so ahead of schedule, and it does kind of put Luke Walton in that conversation, if not for coach of the year, but being one of the better coaches with a young roster that in the entire NBA is one to watch. The other, of course, I think is the Minnesota Timberwolves. And you're right. I expect them to be playing a little bit better as the season goes on. Yeah. I think it's, it's just going to take Tibbs some time to figure out that rotation and figure out what play, what players are staying. Because I think that's part of the problem there is they just have a lot of pieces that maybe don't all fit together. No, definitely not. And I mean, they've been terrible closing games. They, they didn't have Rubio for the last five games, which I mean, they have been, they have like a four year track record of being terrible whenever Rubio is not out there. So I'm not necessarily so worried about them, but it is disappointing because, you know, this is a team that kind of everyone is expecting and and everyone's rooting for the Timberwolves. You know, they're just such a long suffering franchise with such an amazing young core of players and a coach that everyone wants to succeed after he got run out of Chicago. So I think, you know, they'll be better, and it's good that everyone's kind of in their corner. Yeah, I think everyone might have just overhyped that team a bit, and it might be to their detriment that as good as Carl Anthony Towns is and as, as great of a coach as Tibbs uh, has, has proven that he is in the NBA, it's not going to happen overnight in Minnesota, and I think people need to keep that in mind. I, I still think this no, is a, no. a fringe playoff team when they do get it together. Absolutely, and I mean, they have the point differential of a French playoff team right now, so I wouldn't expect that to to keep them, I don't know, I wouldn't, I certainly am not expecting them to be the second worst team in the West going forward. Right, yeah, I, I don't see that continuing either. Let, let's talk a bit about the Thunder. Uh, Pistons will be playing the Thunder tonight at 7.30 uh, in the Palace of Auburn Hills, and the Thunder are going to be coming off a pretty terrible loss to the Orlando Magic. 119-117 to the Magic. Uh, Serge Ibaka with a game winner that put away uh, the Thunder. So I think the Thunder will come in with a bit of a chip on their shoulder. But what have you seen from the Thunder this season, and what should the Pistons expect from OKC uh, heading into tonight's game? I think that they are kind of the the epitome of playing to your opponent so far. I mean, they have a six-point win over the Sixers, a three-point win over the Suns, and then they go to the Clippers, and they beat the Clippers by two, and they lose to the Clippers by two in their next situation. So I think, you know, Russell Westbrook can prop this offense up to a major league average level pretty much no matter what happens. The And, you know, they're, they're going to be a pretty good defensive team too. So I think, you know, the six-and-four and start, they were 
after the six and one start and they've lost in a row since then six and four is about what I would expect. I think the Pistons are going to play this team tough. I don't think that the Thunder are going to have a path. I would be very surprised if this was a blowout for either team. With the, the way Russell Westbrook is playing, does that put him into the MVP conversation no matter the team's record? Or do you think the team's, the Thunder's record is going to come into play uh, for his MVP consideration? It's an interesting debate between like what I think will happen. Like, because, I mean, I think the best player in the league should win MVP every single year. But it's been years and years since a team that, you know, since a player won MVP but didn't have a team that was a top two seed in the, the conference. So I think Russell Westbrook is definitely going to be in the conversation for MVP. I do not think he'll win it because I think eventually there will be a standout team that people think their best player needs to be rewarded. And with uh, just to, to go back to the Pistons game tonight, getting to play against someone like that in late game situations, you're right. The Thunder continue to find themselves in these close games and whether it's playing to their opponent or, you know, j- just kind of leaving maybe too much of it up to Russell Westbrook. Do you worry about the Pistons in this game tonight if it's close uh, going against someone like Russell Westbrook? Is he enough to make you nervous if the game is close? I worry about both teams in a close game, honestly, because I think both of them just don't really have very dynamic offenses right now. Russell Westbrook is very dynamic, obviously, but you're going to, like in a late game situation against the Thunder, Sam Van Gundy's going to know what's happening every single play. He's going to know what's coming at him every single play. And I, that doesn't mean that they necessarily really can stop it, but I trust them to be able to make the Thunder inefficient in a late game scenario. They were even inefficient with Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant in the lineup, and I expect it to only get worse. But I mean, I don't know if the Pistons necessarily have a high level set to go to at the end of a game either. Yeah, and I think this season we haven't really seen that to this point, but that's without Reggie Jackson with, with Jackson returning. That's kind of our answer in the same way that Russell Westbrook is the answer for OKC. Uh, right. And he's going to absolutely overpower Ishmith. I mean, I think they're going to have to go with KCP against him and then Oladipo on, on Smith. Yeah, I, I agree. It, Russell Westbrook, just for everyone, I don't care how much he's worth a great daily fantasy value. Uh, just because I can see him playing very well against the Pistons tonight. But I can also see it being one of those games where he stands out and the Pistons do a good job against the front court for the Thunder, and it's a close game. And I think our rebounding is, again, going to be key because this is a fantastic rebounding team. And I think Baines needs to be able to keep Cantor off the offensive glass. That's true. That's another, just, just for the bench as well. Yeah, it's it's something to watch with uh, how Baines can do against Cantor because he's been fantastic uh, in limited minutes with the Thunder. Right. All right, cool. Well, thanks, Jacob. Thanks for coming on. We'll have have you on next week. This was good. Thanks. Appreciate it.